you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you would go, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm okay. Like, you're kind of in this life and you're living life. And as you're living it, you're like, this is, this is just okay. It doesn't seem to be the most satisfying, most fulfilling life. At times it feels a little incomplete. Just fine. Maybe you feel like you've, that's how you would describe your relationship with the Lord too. That's fine. He does some things. I pursue God some ways, but overall it's just, it's fine. How many of you would say, man, I just feel like I've lost a, a passion and a zeal to this life. Kind of a, a passion and zeal to my relationship with the Lord. Maybe you've been longing for a, a relationship with uh, a spouse for a long time. Maybe you even got married and you're just kind of sitting there still going like, it's fine. Like, don't tell your spouse that, right? Um, like, tell somebody else because that's like a red flag. You should, you should do something about that. But uh, maybe you're kind of in the throes of parenthood right now. And as you're in the middle of it, you're like running from practice to games to camp to all these places, driving around the minivan. You're like just in the middle of it. Like, I'm not hating. I got one too. All right. So um, you're like, you're doing all that kind of thing. And you're like, this is, this is fine. Like, but is this like what all of life is kind of cracked up to be? And then Maybe you're past that and you're like, you're at retirement stage and you've waited for many, many years to have all this freedom and time and be able to spend money differently and all this stuff. And you're like, I'm still not very satisfied. Like it, the idea of it sounded really good, but I've, there's still no like passion to my, to my life. And maybe that's how you feel in your walk with Jesus today. It just feels lacking in passion and zeal. A question for all of us to wrestle with, and hopefully the scripture, and I believe the scripture will address this morning, is how do you restore passion to your life, the busyness of life, the grind of life? How do you restore passion to your life when it feels like God's not working and it may even feel like God's not even with you anymore? How do you restore that kind of passion? To get the answer to that, we're going to look into, we're going to start a new series in the book of Haggai, all right? So if you got a Bible, turn with me to Haggai. Now, we don't think too highly of ourselves around here, so you all should be using your table of contents and not pretending that you know where Haggai is in Scripture, all right? It's between Zephaniah and Zechariah, if that helps you, probably not whatsoever, all right? So use your table of contents. You're not too good for a table of contents here, all right? So... Um, we're in the book of Haggai. Now, I, what I want to do is I'm going to give you a quick history lesson. Some of you haven't been in history class for a while, but I'm going to give you a quick history lesson because learning the history and the context of this book is going to help us understand what is God trying to say to these people, but then ultimately what is God and how are we supposed to apply that to our lives. But if we don't understand the history, we're going to miss out on that, okay? So you've got God early on in the Bible. He chooses this nation Israel. He's going to choose it to be a blessing to the whole world. To glorify the Lord in all the earth, he's going to use this missionary nation, Israel. So this nation becomes so great, so big, that the other surrounding areas get threatened by it, especially Egypt. So they take over the Israelites and they bring them into slavery. And they're there for many, 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 many years. And then God raises up this guy named Moses, and he goes, and you guys, even if you didn't grow up in church, you kind of know the story, right? He goes and says, Pharaoh, let my people go. 
And Pharaoh says, ah, no thanks. And so God sends all these plagues. Ultimately, God uh, rescues his people from slavery. They get to the Red Sea. You know that story. God does miraculous things. Well, then ultimately, the people of Israel become disobedient. They're disobedient. They end up having to wander around and not go into the promised land. And they wander and wander and wander for many years. Finally, they get to enter the promised land. As they enter the promised land... It's a, it's a great time. They're ruled by some judges, but eventually they're like, hey, we want to be like every other nation around us. We need a king. God says, you actually don't need a king. I'll be your king, but I'll give you what you want. So he gives them a king. Actually, it doesn't go very well. Surprise, surprise. And so they are, they're, they're united under this king. Well, then all of a sudden they split into two kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah in the south. And Judah in the south has Jerusalem, the city, the holy city of Jerusalem, where the temple of God was. The temple is going to be critical in what we're going to talk about this morning. So that's how we're getting there. All right. So eventually the Assyrians take over. I told you, you didn't know you were getting this kind of history lesson, did you? All right. So Assyrians take over the northern kingdom. After that, um, eventually God says, hey, the Babylonians are coming in and they're going to destroy the southern kingdom. They actually came in. They destroyed the whole city. They destroyed the temple. They defiled the temple. And they take all those people from Judah and they remove them and they exile them away. Now, 67 years later is where we pick up the book of Haggai. Some of those people, Babylon's actually not in power anymore, anymore, but Persia is. So what's happening is the Persian king goes, you can come back to your city, that's fine. So he lets a remnant of the people start to come back to Jerusalem. And their mission was to come back, rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, rebuild their lives there. So that's where we're picking up this story. They're coming back to the city. For some of them, it's been a little while that they've been back. And that's where we pick up. All right. Haggai, hopefully you found it by this point. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiah, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. You're like, okay, what is this? All right. So you've got this prophet named Haggai, and he's coming to these people. And a prophet is simply a messenger from God who speaks on behalf of God to the people. A messenger from God who speaks on behalf of God to the people. Sometimes that prophet is telling an unforeseeable future event that's going to occur. Or he's directly revealing something from the Lord to a group of people. That's what's happening in Haggai. So he's been a messenger from God speaking on behalf of God to the people. Now, it says that this is in the year of King Darius, the second year of... In, under King Darius's reign. This is where the beauty of Haggai comes in because you get really, really specific dates so we can actually trace this exactly to certain points in history because we know this. And it says it was in the sixth month on the first day. Now the sixth month, you're like, why are we talking about this? Because it actually plays a huge role in all of this, all right? And the sixth month is typically during that time was late August to early September. During this time frame, what you have is kind of the fruit harvest is coming. They've actually finished the grain and the corn harvest. So it's harvest time. It's a really busy time. And it's a time where they're actually assessing, like, how are we doing? How did, how did the crops do over this last year? We're kind of assessing all that, trying to figure out how successful we've been. 
So the first day of the month of this time was a day of rest and a day of celebration where they would all gather around the altar, celebrate the Lord, and rest in the Lord. And that's where the Lord is speaking through Haggai to the people on this day. And he's speaking to their kind of leadership team. Zerubbabel, all right? Name your kid that, right? Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. Zerubbabel is kind of the civil governor. So he was appointed by Persia, but he's actually a descendant of David. So that means... The people there, the Judeans, are putting a ton of hope in this guy. Like, man, this is a guy that's going to bring us back. And also in Joshua the high priest, he was actually exiled out, and he's come back now. So, big deal. He's speaking to the community. Now, what is he going to say? Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. He's going, hey, these people, the house of the Lord being... The temple. These people have said, the time's not yet come for us to rebuild the temple. Now, wasn't that the whole mission of them coming back? And now they're saying, well, I'm not against rebuilding the temple. I would love to rebuild the temple at some time, but now's not the right time for us to do that. Well, remember, it's harvest time, so potentially they're just really busy. It may not be the time because they're just really busy. We also know from history that they're about to get into a big war with Egypt. And so maybe they're just storing up their resources to go to battle soon. So there's not enough resources for us to rebuild the temple. Or maybe they've been waiting for 67 years to have their nation, city rebuilt, their temple rebuilt, and they're just weary. They're discouraged. It's a really hard season. Maybe they're just waiting on God. For the Messiah to come, for this temple to rebuilt, be rebuilt. So here you've got a group of people that have come back saying, Yes, we want to rebuild the temple. We would love to rebuild the temple. But now's not the right time. Because maybe it's a busy season. We don't have enough resources. We're discouraged because it's a hard season. Or we're just waiting on God to do something and tell us when to do his mission. Now, how is God going to respond to this verse 3 then the word of the lord came by the hand of haggai the prophet is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins is it you you keep giving this excuse that you don't it's not the right time to rebuild the temple well well why is it the right time for you to build your own paneled houses and paneled there it was referring to solomon's temple And these panels were all over the roof of Solomon's temple. And they really represented great luxury versus a simple life. And God's going, wait, you don't have time to rebuild my house, but you have no problems building up the luxurious lifestyle that you're living. Yeah, I know you say you're busy and you don't have enough resources and you're kind of discouraged and you're waiting on me, but... Doesn't seem like you're too busy to build your own life. Doesn't seem like you're lacking in resources because you're building your paneled houses. I know you're discouraged, but you're putting a lot of work into building your own life. And I know you say you're waiting on me to do my mission, but you have no problem doing your own mission. And there's this, there's this incredible mission drift. They came to rebuild the temple, and now all they're doing is rebuilding their own lives. And they're lost in the day-to-day busyness or the day-to-day grind of life. 
And some of you, you know what this feels like because you're right in the middle of it. Their priorities were off, pursuing their own things. But they had great desires. When you signed your kid up for that soccer team, that traveling baseball team, and you said, I want to be really missional doing this with all the other parents. And it's been three years and you've yet to share the gospel with any other parent. Or I really want to live in this neighborhood. It's a great neighborhood, great houses, because I want to be like um, be on mission to reach all my neighbors. And it's been five years and you've yet to talk about Jesus. Your neighbors don't even know you're a Christian. And we begin to say, have all these like, missional reasons. Yes, I'm going to do this. But then we start to get distracted and start to go in all these other ways. And then when God says, this is what I want you to do, you're like, well, I'm a little too busy. Soccer practice. Works hard. It's a really busy season. Or it's just a really hard season. I'll get to it one day. And what God's telling these people is like, wait, what are you doing? Like, no, that's not how this works. So why was it such a big deal that the temple be rebuilt? Because the temple was a symbol of where God's manifest presence dwelt. It was a symbol of where God's manifest presence dwelt among his people. So if you backed up earlier, he refers to them as like, these people, in verse 2, he says, these people say they, the time has not yet come. God is immediately putting some distance in between him and his covenant people. It would be like, so I have four kids at the house. They don't always act perfect, rarely act perfect, all right? So um, sometimes we have to address things, and sometimes they are acting crazy, and I'll look at my wife, Erica, and I'll say, hey, Erica, look what your kids are doing, right? Like, those are your kids over there, right? She does the same thing to me sometimes, too. Look at your kids, Michael. But it's this whole idea, like, look at them. Like, look how they're acting. Like, that's almost what God's doing here. These people. Like, he could have said, like, my people, these are my people. You know, these people, you're acting that way. And there's this distance that's kind of created where you're like, wait a second. Like, we are your people, but, but you're not referring to us that way. He's going, because you're, you're building up a different kind of life. And so the history of the, the temple... This is a big deal because this is where God's manifest, dwe- manifest presence dwelt with his people. And it started in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. It says, And let them make me a sanctuary or a tabernacle at the time that I may dwell in their midst. This is when the Israelites are wandering around. And God goes, You're wandering around. I need you to be reminded of my presence. So I want you to build a tabernacle. And this is going to be the place where my presence dwells among you. And it's this the reminder. You can constantly come back to it. And there were these great instructions for it. And then when David comes along, and they're not wandering around anymore, they're in Jerusalem. What David does is he goes, I'm going to build a permanent dwelling, a temple for God. And God goes, great idea, but you're actually not going to do it. I'm going to let your son do it. So Solomon builds this amazing temple where God's presence dwelt. And so that's this history of Man, we want to be reminded of the presence of God. And here's this group of people who have returned to rebuild their lives, but they've yet to remember that God's presence is with them. And now they're being referred to as those people, right? So then verses 5 and 6. 
Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does, not, does so to put them into a bag with holes. He's going, look, guys, you are so busy with your resources that you're trying, you're hoping to accomplish certain things in your life, and those things aren't being accomplished because of the way you're living. What you think you're putting into something, you're not getting out. Because you're, you're drinking a bunch of stuff and you're eating a lot of stuff, but you're not satisfied. You're clothing yourself, but you're staying cold. Like you're earning wages, do, living your life, but you've got holes in your pockets and it's just falling out. You're not getting out of this life what you think you're putting into it. He says, consider your ways. Consider your priorities. Give great attention to what you're doing in your life. Direct your mind toward it. Give deep reflection of what you're doing with your life. They weren't faithful. They were pursuing their own interest and not the interest of God. And he's going, watch out. Be careful. Consider your ways. Consider your ways because they end up being unfulfilled and feeling inadequate. And being really disappointed in life. And many of you know those feelings when you start to pursue your own interest and not the Lord's. Inadequate, incomplete, and really disappointed. So what is the Lord going to say here? Verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So he doubles down. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. He goes, consider your ways again. Give careful attention to what you're doing. Leave all your stuff. Go up to the hills. Start grabbing some wood and start rebuilding this temple today. That's what I want you to do. But what? why? Why were they to do this? Because it wasn't about their priorities. It was something deeper than that. He says that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. The whole issue with these people wasn't the temple. The issue wasn't their priorities. The issue was their heart. Were they taking pleasure in the Lord and were they glorifying the Lord? No, they had made life about them. It was no longer about his pleasure pleasure and his glory. Not the priorities, but it was about them. God is concerned, church, with your hearts. God is concerned with your hearts. Is he concerned with your priorities? Yes, because they reveal your heart. Where you spend your time reveals your priorities, which reveals your heart. How you speak, Jesus would say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you talk about is going to reveal your heart. If you can't remember the last time you brought up Jesus in a conversation, you need to be aware that you're in danger of having a heart problem. How are you spending your time? How are you spending your screen time? How are you spending your money? All those things are going to point back to your heart, which are going to reveal your priorities. So he's going, watch out, because this is about my pleasure and my glory, not about you. It's not about your 
retirement dreams and your ambition and your success and your kids' success. This is about the Lord here. But they're drifting from this mission. Verses 9 through 11 say this. You looked for much and behold it came to little. So this is what they're looking for a lot in their life but it's not doing anything. Um, And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain, and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. So here you've got God saying, you're experiencing a lot of pain because your heart is in the wrong place. It's going to reveal their, not only their hearts, but this is going to reveal the work of God. Because he goes, you brought some stuff in, I blew it away. I've withheld the dew. The earth's withheld the produce. So you're like, wait a second, is God like allowing suffering in their lives? Absolutely. To get their attention that their heart is on something other than him. He is 100% using pain and suffering and withholding things from them because he cares about their hearts. He's not worried about what they're getting out of it. He wants their hearts because they made it about them and not his glory. Are you in a dry season in your walk with the Lord? Maybe it's because the Lord's withholding the dew. Maybe it's because you lost your passion and your heart's in the wrong place. Which begs the question... In this passage, like, is prosperity, like, the thing that is brought on by our our obedience or not? Yes, both. Like, some of you are like, wait a second, Jake's out for a few weeks, Michael's starting to preach prosperity gospel. No, I'm not. All right, hold on, hold on just a second. So what you get here, all throughout Scripture, when God's in covenant relationship with his people, he brings blessings and curses. Based on our obedience and disobedience, sometimes based on his pleasure to grab our hearts, right? No doubt about it. You see all throughout Scripture. There's blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Like, blessed, blessed, blessed. And those aren't, like, blessing because you're persecuted. That doesn't mean you did something wrong. You were doing the right thing. And so there was this blessing. They're not all physical blessings. There's spiritual blessings involved here. But even in the book of Job, here's a guy that was doing all the right stuff, who was honoring the Lord, was obedient to the Lord. And what did the Lord say? Have at him, Satan. Like, it was a hard life. None of us want the life that Job had to live, even though he was very obedient. So you can't just say, like, our prosperity in life, all our blessings in life are just tied to our obedience because at the end of Job, it's not going to be on screen, but he says, why do the wicked live? Why do the wicked reach old age? Why do, they, why do the wicked grow mighty in power? You have the wicked growing mighty in power and living. Like, why? Because God's sovereign over it all. Why does Babylon come in and take over and destroy Jerusalem? Because God was trying to teach his people something. God's using suffering and hardship. But there's a principle of like reaping and sowing as well. But there's grace in all of this. God gives it. We don't deserve any of it. But here in this passage, you've got a group of people who are actually living in luxury. And they still didn't. Their hearts were wrong. 
Their hearts were wrong. I want you to think about it in this way. Pretend you have like our hearts right here. Then our actions. So hearts, actions, and then the results of all of it. All right? Hearts, actions, results. This is what the prosperity gospel says, like a health and wealth gospel. Well, if you do all the right things, then you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, all right? But it focuses on all the results. It's not a true gospel. That's a false gospel where you just focus on what you can get out of a relationship with God. Most of us are in this whole actions area. How can we be more moral? How can we do the right things? We focus on our actions. Prosperity gospel focuses on results. We focus on actions a lot. You know what God's concerned about? Our hearts. Because when our hearts are in the right place, it affects our priorities, which affects our actions. And then the results, good, bad, ugly, doesn't matter. Because God has your heart. And what's the whole point of all of this? Is God's presence. That's the blessing in life. Not stuff, not possessions, not more effective materialism over here. The issue is God's presence. And when your heart is right, you get the presence of God. And we talked about this last week. You get Christ's righteousness, which gains you access to the presence of God. God cares about your heart. We're not going after the stuff. We're not going after morality. We're going after a heart that longs for the Lord and the glory of the Lord and everything. That's what the gospel is. And that's what God's going after here. So even though he's saying, yeah, you didn't act right. And because of that, I've withheld a lot of stuff. And I did that so that I could get your attention and get your heart. So, the heart is the key, guys. The heart is the key. So what happens when they hear this? Verses 12 and 13. So then Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant of all the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. This is a preacher's dream, guys. <laughs> like, immediately, they listen, they obey, and they fear the Lord. This doesn't happen in the prophets. It rarely ever happens. Most of the time, the prophets are begging, please turn to the Lord, please repent, please, please, please. And almost immediately, they're going, man, we're wrong. We get it. Like, we want to obey what the word of the Lord says. We totally want to obey. Right here, guys. Babies cry. It's all right. Kids cry. All right? So, you, like, he's going, man, we obey. Yeah, we want to obey. Because we're fearful of the Lord, too. Now, sometimes we kind of sugarcoat the fear of the Lord. as like, oh, we just have a holy reverence of the Lord. But we... We revere the Lord who is also powerful and just and authoritative and could take us out at any moment, right? To be very frank and blunt with you. Now, that's not the motivation to get your heart right with the Lord, fear. That's not at all the motivation. But we need to have a holy reverence of a powerful, authoritative God and obey what He says. Reprioritize our lives. Not because of fear, not because our priorities out of order, because our hearts out of order. That's what he's going for. Now, here's the amazing thing. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. Those people, yeah, I'm with you. You obeyed, I'm with you. 
and to have a powerful, authoritative God that you're not just scared of, but he's with you? Man, that's good news. That is good news. God is with you. Such good news. Not just those people. These are my people and I'm going to be with you. I know this is hard. I know you're going to have to reprioritize life, but I'm going to be with you in this rebuilding. Now, when we take the Old Testament and we try to grab principles from the Old Testament that we can apply to our lives, we have to filter it through the New Testament because Jesus came on the scene, right? Like that changes everything. Because if you just took this principle and you're like, okay, they were supposed to rebuild the temple. Why don't we have a temple? We need to go rebuild the temple. No, you don't. America's not the new Israel, all right? That's not where we're going, all right? We, we don't need to rebuild the temple. We not only don't need to rebuild the temple, but we're not in a building campaign to go like, Veritas needs new buildings, like rebuild. Like that's not what this is about. This is about your heart, our hearts, my heart as well. Like, so... How do, we, how do I get there, though? Because you've got to look at the New Testament first. This is what, in John chapter 1, this is what it says about Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. This is that whole idea that we sing at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. We need to say that way more than just at Christmas time. Became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's the presence of God dwelling in fullness in Jesus. But then Jesus ascends to heaven eventually, right? He dies, he's buried, he's resurrected, but he ascends to heaven. So wait a second, like, did we lose the presence of God? No, I'm going to send you a comforter. It's the Holy Spirit. No, he's not just going to be beside you like Jesus, but now what's going to happen? He's going to dwell in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you not know that you, believer, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This is the principle. This is your life revealed through the prophet Haggai. Go rebuild the temple because your heart's off. You are now the temple of God because the spirit dwells in you. God's presence is with you. Later on in 1 Corinthians, it says, don't pursue immorality because you're the temple of God. Then later on, don't pursue idolatry because you're the temple of God. Because you're the temple of God where the Spirit of God dwells, we don't pursue immorality or idolatry any longer. Things that grab a hold of our hearts and change our priorities. He's going, no, no. This is different now in the New Testament. And then when all of us who have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us come together, we form this thing called the church. And this is what Ephesians says. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is where the beauty of the church is, guys. Where God's presence dwells in His individual people. We come together, dwells among us, and it puts God on display when we operate how He says we should operate. When we're about His glory and not our own glory. That's what we're going after. So what is your life about this morning? Where's your heart? And what is... 
What does God's presence actually do? Verses 14 and 15. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. Then it goes on. He stirred up the spirit of Joshua. And then he stirred up the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month and the sixth month and the second year of Darius the king. It said, the Lord, when he said, I'm with you, it roused the spirit. It brought the passion back. How in the world are you to regain a passion for the Lord when it feels like you're just going through the grind of life, the busyness of life? Don't forget the presence of God, guys. Don't forget it. Because I'm with you and all my power and all my authority. I'm with you. And let that renew your passion for Him. That He is with you. Imagine for a second. Silly story. I want you to just imagine with me. Dream for a second. All right. So you're in high school. And you're playing this pickup basketball tournament. You really, really want to win the tournament. And you're playing, you're playing hard, but then you realize you're, you're a guy and you realize there's some girls sitting on the, on the sidelines and you forget about caring about the game anymore because you just want to impress the girls. All right? So you're just there to impress the girls and you're like, you're the ball hog. You're not passing the ball. You're not for your team anymore. You're just doing your own thing. Well, at one, some point, one of your teammates gets hurt. Now, now this is a great thing about made-up stories. Out comes out of the locker room. Your new teammate is Michael Jordan, all right? So Michael Jordan is now your teammate in this pickup basketball game. At that point, you go, whoa, Michael Jordan's on my team? Like, I better get it together, right? Like, who cares about the girls on the sidelines? Michael Jordan is on my team. And... Michael Jordan knows how to play basketball. I better quit messing around. How much more in this life, when we recognize that God is present with us, it changes and takes our attention off the things that we were pursuing in this life. When our heart was pulled toward the world and our own pleasures, how much more? Saying, God is with me. Why would I pursue that anymore? Change my heart, God. I'm going after you. Like, you're on my team in this life. Think of life. Guys, how much more the presence of God is with you as a believer because His Spirit dwells in you. That shapes everything. It changes our hearts, which change our priorities, which change our actions which keep us on mission with God and prevent us from drifting. So guys, if you want to restore your passion, restore your passion for God by remembering the presence of God. Restore your passion for God by remembering the presence of God. Now here's a really cool thing. I told you Haggai was really specific with his dates, right? There in verse 15 it says, On the 24th day of the month and the 6th month and the 2nd year of Darius. So we're still in the 2nd year. We're still in the same month. We're actually only 23 days later. And here are people who are rebuilding their own lives and now they've already started rebuilding the temple. In 23 days, God changes a people's heart. 
And God could do it today in your life. You don't need 10 years. You don't need 23 days. God can do that today. You're not too far gone, even if your heart is in the wrong place. God is that gracious and that merciful, and you are not beyond his reach this morning. You're not. But don't just try to fix your priorities. Let God transform your heart to take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. So how do we do this? The way that Haggai did this, like he preached the word and they responded to the word. If you can't remember the last time that you were in the word of God, it's going to be really hard to have your passion restored. Get, get in the Bible reading plan that we have. Get it. I don't care if it's our Bible reading plan, somebody else's Bible's reading, Bible reading plan. I don't care. Just get into the Word if you want your passion restored. Be confronted with the Word of God. And then consider your ways. Assess all those areas we talked about earlier. Your time, your screen time, your money, all those kind of things because they're going to reveal your priorities. So be confronted with the Word. Consider your ways. Confess your excuses. I'm just too busy to pursue your mission, God. I don't have enough resources to pursue your mission, God. I'm just waiting on the right time, God. I'm having a really hard season, God. Maybe I'll get there one day. Confess those excuses to the Lord. And then, church, whatever it takes for you to remember that God is with you, do it. You might need to go today and buy a packet of sticky notes. And you put sticky notes everywhere in your life that says, God is with me. You put it on the mirror when you wake up in the morning. You put it on your steering wheel. God is with me. You put it beside your computer at work. Whatever that is. Maybe you need 24 different reminders every hour of the day. A reminder on your phone that says, God's with me. God is with me. God is with me. Don't forget it. Remember that God is with you. You're not one of those people. You are His people. And you need to remember His presence. Because that will shape everything. And guys, when we begin to do this as a church, we are willing to put everything on the table, God, for your mission. Pray for us as elders, as pastors, as staff, that we would never make this church about our own glory. That is not anyone's desire. But we know how quickly that could change. And so you beg and plead like we do that this would always be about God's glory here. That's what our desire is. We don't want to build our own stuff. It's not worth it. Last week it's a loss, right? But we want our hearts changed forever. That's the kind of church we want to be that is all about God's glory and not our own. Amen? Let's pray. God, to you be the glory forever and ever. Reveal our hearts, reveal our priorities, transform our hearts. God, thank you that your grace is sufficient. When we pursue other things, when we are weak and want to pursue our own lives and our own interests, God, thank you for your grace. May we live as a people who have been shown grace and mercy by holy, righteous powerful, authoritative God. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.